So hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Thier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and during our webinar today, we're going to review some of the most important concepts of programming and analysis and share a couple of practice exam questions as we review a mock exam with the uh, now famous Mike Newman. Uh, a couple updates for you guys. Uh, if you're new and joining us for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of the ARE 5.0 divisions. We offer comprehensive test prep for the ARE with video lectures, practice exams, flashcards, and virtual workshops. And it's all available online and with memberships available either for individual architects or for firms, AI chapters, or schools. Um, and you can head to blackspectacles.com and click ARE prep to find more information about our ARE study materials. As a reminder, we've launched our ARE guarantee we're so confident that if you use our expert membership to the fullest, you will pass the ARE. And if you don't, we're putting our money where our mouth is and paying for your retake. So to learn more about how to qualify for the guarantee or to check out our individual memberships and see what kinds of materials we offer, you can go to blackspectacles.com and under the heading ARE prep, you'll find details of the ARE guarantee. And as I mentioned, we have group memberships as well. So to learn more about that, um, you can go to blackspectacles.com and head to the pricing section, and then uh, you can either click on firms or schools or AIA chapters. So those are the updates. Uh, our next session at our next ARE Live broadcast on August 12th of 2021, uh, we'll review a construction and evaluation exercise with our virtual workshop instructor, Jory. Uh, similar to how you're getting a preview of our practice exams today, our upcoming ARE Live will give you kind of a look at what virtual workshops are and how they um, now, all the stuff you can get from them. Um, so definitely don't miss that. Today we'll be engaging exclusively on our ARE community. So if you haven't been there before, you can type in community.blackspectacles.com and you can go to the, 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 let's say the homepage there and click on ARE Live and then pinned to the top is the thread programming analysis mock exam 21. Uh, everyone who posts in our thread today will be eligible to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So head over uh, to community.blackspectacles.com. And all you have to do is say hi. You don't even have to post a fancy question if you don't have one yet. Um, but uh, all you have to do is say hi, and that will enroll you in the, uh, uh, the uh, whatever you call it, giveaway for the t-shirt. Um, and we'll announce that at the end of the, uh, the, the episode. So be sure to stick around um, to, to see if you won. We also will have a special discount on all Black Spectacles ARE prep memberships to share and help you along in your journey. Uh, we'll provide that coupon code at, coupon code at the end of the show. Uh, if you don't know our guest, Mr. Mike Newman, he is a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep video lectures. So thanks for joining us today, Mr. Newman, and with that, I'll hand it over to you. All right. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, good to uh, be here with everybody. Uh, I am here uh, in New York City right now on a little vacation. Um, and uh, so there is construction all around. Um, hopefully you won't hear that sound. And there's also a lovely calm dog named Kentucky who um, generally doesn't bark at all unless the neighbors go out with their poodle. Uh, so hopefully the neighbors don't go out with their poodle so we don't have any <laughs> uh, sound issues, but uh, there we go. Um, all right, so as Mark said, uh, we're going to dive into uh, programming and analysis. Uh, 
the you know the way the exam works right there's the two exams that are about uh, uh, practice management and project management those are kind of the kind of contracts and insurance and how do you you know get the right people onto the job uh, all of those sorts of issues uh, and then there's the four in a row that are sort of a sequence uh, conceptually in kind of a timeline uh, the beginning of a project, the kind of early design phases of a project, the uh, uh, kind of pulling together the communication of the kind of the contract documents, the CD sets phases of a project, and then during construction. Um, so those four kind of uh, in a row timeline, and this is the first of those. So it's programming and analysis. And it's a little funny because uh, programming and analysis actually sort of constitutes all the work that is happening that you do architecturally before you're really starting the actual design process. So programming and kind of, you know, gathering uh, contract information and uh, kind of uh, taking a look at the site and analyzing the site and looking, making, gathering all of the zoning information and all of that. So all that work that's happening prior to you really uh, getting into the design, but sort of allowing you to get into the design. But then also kind of leaking over, the exam kind of leaks over into the kind of very initial aspects of kind of schematic design. Uh, so you can get some design questions, you get a lot of analysis questions, you get some uh, kind of uh, contract questions, uh, kind of setting up the process for the project. So it's all the things that are going on at the very beginning uh, from before design starts to just after design starts uh, in order to sort of lay the groundwork for an architectural project. Uh, and so we're just going to take a look at a couple of uh, example questions uh, that we've made up uh, and uh, do some quick run-throughs of some thoughts about those and how you might uh, be able to uh, make that make good decisions as you're as you're going through an exam. So let's just dive in. Uh, we have question one here. Uh, the architect has been contracted to work on the rehabilitation of an old printing plant to develop it into a new community center. Old buildings used for printing in the past often have remnants of toxic chemicals, which can be hazardous to future building users. What should the architect do in this situation? So let's, we'll sort of randomly start going through uh, a couple of the possible answers and, and kind of think about it a little bit. Let's take a look at A first. So if we're looking at A, the architect should request relevant environmental information from the seller of the site. So right off the bat, you should see, well, that doesn't sound really right. Um, but the reason it doesn't sound right is it's talking about the seller of the site. There's nothing up here in the question that refers to the site having just been sold. We don't have any information telling us that, and so we shouldn't be supplying that uh, specific kind of information into the question ourselves in order for that to be a reasonable answer. Um, so A is definitely not it, and uh, there's sort of the beginning of that question. The architect should request relevant environmental information from the seller of the site, so the architect doing the requesting. We're gonna talk more about that in, in a second, but that's another uh, reason why that tells us that's probably not it. Um, let's look at, at D. So on D, 
The architect should terminate their contract as typical architectural insurance does not cover the architect for liability issues with hazardous materials. So this is kind of an interesting answer because that's actually true. Uh, typical architectural insurance uh, really doesn't cover architects for liability issues with hazardous materials. Now, does not cover is probably a little strong. Um, like if, uh, you, you are of course covered to, to some degree, <clears throat> um, but it's, it is definitely true that architectural insurance companies uh, are decidedly uh, want, they, they definitely want architects to stay out of decision-making when it comes to hazardous materials. Uh, so there's very strong language about how the architects uh, should not be involved in the sort of analysis and uh, decision-making about hazardous materials. But uh, clearly, you know, if, the, if there are hazardous materials, projects have to be able to move forward. And so there's oh, sort of systems and guidelines and rules for how architects can take information uh, from environmental engineers and, and be helpful in the design process uh, with that. So it doesn't really make sense here at D. So I'm going to say no to D because the architect should terminate their contract. Like if you terminated your contract every time there was some question of hazardous material, you you know half your projects would be gone. Um, so that's just not a viable, reasonable response. Though it is true, as I said, that there are these issues with insurance. So that leaves us B and C. Let's take a look at, uh, uh, how about B? The architect should contact an environmental engineer to test for chemicals in the building. Well, that sounds reasonable that an environmental engineer should be contacted to come and test for chemicals in the building. If we're worried about it, that certainly seems uh, like a reasonable thing. The issue on B though, is that it's the architect doing it. Uh, so that's not the correct answer. C is going to be the correct answer. Let's read C. The architect should suggest that the owner, so the owner is the one doing the contacting, not the architect. The architect should suggest that the owner obtain an environmental phase one report on the property. So a couple things going on in there. The big one is that it's the owner doing the uh, work on hazardous materials. And conceptually, they should be doing this uh, before the architect has even uh, been hired, before the contract with the architect, so that the phase one report is something that is given to the architect uh, at the time, uh, along with the program, along with the uh, survey and you know various geotechnical information. Uh, so all of that is pulled together by the ownership team and then given to the architect when the architect gets uh, uh, hired on for the for the project. So. Uh, so that's the first thing is that the owner is doing that contacting with the environmental engineer. And then the whole thing of a phase one, there's a phase one and there's a phase two. The phase one, the concept here is if you have some reason to believe there might be some issues. So if you're doing like a completely virgin site out in, uh, you know, that no, that's never been built on before, and there's really no reason to believe there's any uh, hazardous issues at all, well, really nobody's going to require you to even do a phase one. You don't, you don't really need to do anything because you're just going to build like you would normally build. But if you're in a situation where there's maybe was a gas station or there was a printing plant or there's various other things around or this, you just sort of have a feeling 
there might be some some hazardous chemical issues, uh, then you would do the phase one. And that's where somebody's going to, an environmental engineer is going to walk through the building, uh, potentially through photos, but usually they'll physically walk through the building and they're going to look around. They're just going to see if there's any telltale signs. So like eight by eight tiles that are probably asbestos or certain kinds of wrap on uh, old plumbing pipes, or uh, you're looking at the walls and windows and it looks like they haven't been repainted since uh, the 50s or 60s or something when there's probably lead-based paint in the paint. Uh, you know, finding other kind of, uh, looks like maybe there were tanks in the basement that had oil or, you know, things like that. So you just kind of walk through and it's like, does this look like there's any problems? And if there are problems, then you can start documenting those issues. But then they also would then go for a phase one and they would go read, uh, read up and like do a bunch of research and find who had been in the building, who had been nearby the building. Uh, are there issues that seem likely that uh, would have left behind some, some problems? And so the idea of the phase one is that it's relatively easy to do because you don't want, if there's a situation where you're trying to do a development, you don't want to have everybody have to do these really draconian tests and you know, test everything out and, and have a you know, big, long process if there's really not likely any problem. And so the phase one is meant to be sort of a low cost, low, easy way to figure out if it really makes sense to do more work or not. So you get to the end of the phase one and the environmental engineers will give recommendations. And then the recommendations might be, uh, yeah, we don't see any issues. Uh, you know, it seems like you should be able to go ahead without any problem or with some minor issues, here's a few things, you should have these two things tested and then, and then removed or something like that. Or it might say, uh, there's a bunch of issues here, here's the list of things that we see that are probably problematic and therefore you should go to a phase two. And so then the phase two is the expensive one where they come in, they test everything uh, and you go through the whole place and you, you really figure it out. And then they give you a bunch of very specific uh, suggestions. And those suggestions are what the architect then takes and can sort of turn into uh, part of their architectural design. Uh, now, it's totally reasonable in that, that you might have questions about it and want to do something a different way. And that's fine. It, you can set up you know, meetings through the owner back to the environmental engineers and you know, make suggestions and things but they have to give you that sort of written set of, uh, of suggestions that then that's what you're using uh, when you're putting together your uh, designs and eventually your contract documents. So things about uh, you know, covering over materials, encapsulation, removal, uh, all of those kinds of issues. So the phase one, the ownership team should be getting it. Uh, quite literally, uh, if the owner says to you, uh, hey, I, you know, I'm busy, can you just call them up and do it? By you calling them, you can actually be taking on the owner's liability uh, uh, for that set of issues and make your insurance company really unhappy. Um, now, I say that not that anybody's gonna get sued. And, you know, like We use that those examples just to kind of make a point, um, but uh, it is worth noting that there are reasons why certain things fall under the ownership's world, certain things fall under the architect's world and certain things fall under the general contractor's world. And it's partly to keep clarity and it's partly to keep clarity of liability. So 
answer here is C. Uh, the architect should suggest, because that's a role of the architect, is helping the owner through the process. So you're suggesting that they do something, and the thing that they're going to do is get an uh, environmental phase one done by uh, accredited uh, environmental engineers. Okay, moving on. Question two. The site is a rectangle, 200 feet east-west on one side and 100 foot north-south uh, on the other. So, okay, let's do a quick little. So there's 200 feet and 100 feet. Uh, the initial zoning reviews show that there is a front yard setback of five feet uh, on the south side. So I'm gonna, whoop, not a very good line, but let's call that five feet. Uh, then on the side yards, uh, there's a setback of 10 feet each. Uh, and then a rear yard setback of 40 feet. So that's the 40 feet there. Uh, and uh, the floor area ratio is 2.25. Uh, and so the question is, which of the following uh, will uh, sort of work out here? Um, and so we have uh, uh, six different possibilities and we're gonna choose three that work. Um, one of the things it mentions is that you don't have to worry about parking. There's a couple of other things in there, but essentially this is the part that we're interested in. There's two particular pieces of information uh, that we're intrigued by. One is the total floor area allowed, which would be the site area multiplied by the FAR, in this case, 2.25, the floor area ratio. So how, that's the ratio between the site area and the allowable area. So if we had a site area of 20,000 square feet and we had an FAR of one, that would mean you'd be allowed to build 20,000 square feet of building. Uh, above grade. Um, so that's one thing. And this is one of the ways that municipalities have uh, sort of controlled scale uh, on different sites. The idea being, uh, I'm going to mess this whole sheet up, but imagine you have a site like that. And I could conceptually have kind of a low building on it that's a couple stories tall, maybe, and takes up a large. Uh, chunk of the site, um, and that will maybe that meets our FAR number. Um, but I could also do the same FAR with a tall building, many stories, but a smaller footprint, and that might be the same number of square foot of building. And the idea being that if I have you know sunlight, say, coming over uh, that building to a neighbor. Um, that, you know, with a shorter building, it's a more massive on the footprint, but it's shorter. And so the sunlight can get over and air can get around. On the uh, taller one, the tall building is going to block that sunlight, but it's only going to block the sunlight in some of the time. There's going to be other parts of the day when I'm going to get actually more sunlight. And so it's a way of kind of controlling how much damage 
uh, one new project can do to the neighbors in a in a neighborhood uh, and allow sunlight, allow fresh air, uh, control the sort of sense of scale of buildings. So it's kind of an intriguing way of, of just using the site area as a way to control all of those things by just doing this one ratio. So it's kind of a fascinating approach. These days, most uh, zoning codes will actually also include a height limitation, uh, but the originally, I think many of them didn't. The idea was that the FER would sort of handle that because at some point, uh, you you're not gonna go taller because the footprint gets too small. Uh, so it's an interesting way of kind of thinking about it. You have these uh, two big issues. Uh, one of them is the total square footage that you're allowed to build uh, through understanding the FAR. So that's gonna be, we have the site area of 100 times 200, which is equal to 20,000 square feet. Uh, we multiply 20,000 times 2.25. We get, I hope I'm doing this in my head correctly, 45,000 square feet. So that's the total building area above grade that we're allowed to build with this FAR. But the other thing we're going on, we have all these setbacks, and so we have a buildable footprint. So we can't build beyond, at least for the primary structure, we can't build uh, beyond uh, these uh, setbacks. So our buildable footprint is in that area right there, and that's going to be, uh, so 200 minus 10 feet and minus 10 feet, so we've got 100 and 80 feet, and we're gonna multiply that times, we have 100 minus five minus 40, which leaves us 55 left, so 180 times 55. I believe that gets us to 9,900 square feet. So that's the total maximum allowed footprint that we can have. So two totally different numbers, but they're both limitations on how we are uh, analyzing the site for future designs. So when we look through these uh, things, the one story, the five story, those kinds of issues, that actually doesn't really matter given what we're being told in this context. Um, so uh, because all we're talking about is the footprint and the FAR, so the two things we care about are the gross square footage and the square footage per floor, which would be the footprint. So when we look through, let's look at the footprint first, uh, 7,400 square feet, that's less than 9,900, so we're okay. 10,000 is more, so that one B doesn't work. Uh, 9,900 just slips in for C. Uh, 2,500 easily falls in there for D. Uh, 7,600 works for E. Uh, 15,000 does not work for F. So we've taken F and B out. Uh, so now there's just one more to go we have to get rid of, and then the other three are the answer. Uh, so let's look at comparing to the 45,000. Uh, 22,000 works, so A is okay. Uh, C, 19,800 works. Uh, 12,500 works. Uh, but E, 45,000. 600 is more than 45,000, so that one does not work. So our answers are A, C, and D.
Okay. All right, question three. The architect has been asked to create the program for the building. Which of the following should be included? Check three. So this is a kind of an odd question. You'll actually get questions like this on this part of the exam, on this exam, because it's sort of about programming. Um, although technically, programming is actually not part of the architect's role. Architects get involved in it all the time because architects know a lot about programming and know a lot about what makes sense to include. Uh, and a lot of especially less sophisticated uh, uh, owners, you know, people who are doing a building for the first time or something, you get a very sophisticated developer who's built a bunch of buildings, uh, they'll have a very strong system for how they're gonna figure out their own program. They don't need the architect to be involved. But there'll be lots of other times when architects will kind of need to get involved. Uh, and so you would have to figure out, are you just doing that as kind of a, uh, a way to, as a loss leader to get a project? Are you uh, adding it on as an additional service onto your contract? Uh, are you doing a separate contract just to help them do programming? Uh, and then once that's done, then you do a new contract for the actual architectural work. Uh, so programming and architects is a little bit odd because like I say, technically, most of the time the architect isn't supposed to be involved, but often are. So here's the question. You've, been, you've apparently been asked to be part of the program for putting together the program for the building. What should be included? So we have list of goals for the project, analysis of room square footages and use overlaps, assembly type cost estimate, preliminary designs, initial budget, construction schedule. Um, so I'm just going to uh, take out a couple of these right off the bat. Uh, the first one I'm going to take out is going to be construction schedule. Uh, the construction schedule is something that the architect uh, and the owner just don't know yet. You're putting together the program. Uh, you don't have a, a full design yet. Uh, there's really no way that you could have an idea of the construction schedule. You might have an idea of uh, limitations like it might be if you're say a school uh, and you need the students to be able to come in in September and start school there may be some you know schedule important information but you don't really understand yet the construction schedule that's really in the purview of the contractor uh, and you won't even have a contractor probably for a number of months so uh, absolutely construction schedule would not be part of it. You might throw in some sort of guesses here and there, but you wouldn't actually call it a construction schedule uh, because that would imply that you actually know how long the construction will take and you don't. Uh, so that's, uh, that one's out. Um, and then I'm gonna look at uh, C and say, you know, that one is also out. So an assembly type cost estimate. Cost estimates uh, come in you know, a bunch of varieties, of course, uh, from uh, very generic rough guess all the way to highly detailed, uh, every line item, every trade uh, calculated out. So if you can kind of imagine uh, kind of the first level might be what's referred to as uh, comparables. Um, so if you're, say, an architect and you've worked on uh, uh, a library before and that library was 10,000 square feet uh, and this library that you're about to do is 12,000 square feet that you're expecting to build 
Well, you can probably make a pretty good guess uh, what the uh, cost estimates are going to be for it just by basing it off of the previous one you did. And if you did one a little while ago and it's a little smaller, you're going to add a little bit of money to that. Maybe it was uh, uh, eight years ago. Well, so, okay, the prices have gone up, so you're going to add some more money to it. So it's sort of a generalized kind of rough guess, but with real knowledge because you've done it before. And so you're kind of comparing to other information that you have. That's that first that first level. And then kind of a second level. And these, by the way, the one, two, three are this is just me, that nobody else will give you these. So don't worry about that. This is, I'm just trying to put it in order. But the second level might be kind of a square footage number. So you might say, all right, things seem to be getting built at around 250, excuse me, $250 a square foot. Uh, so we think it'll be, you know, roughly this big, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 square feet. And we think it'll be roughly $250 a square foot. And we can calculate that out and have a kind of rough guess, you know, reasonable, uh, we're in the ballpark kind of uh, cost estimate. And then the third one I would say is square foot plus. So that's where, okay, you've now started the schematic designs or at least preliminary designs. You're starting to get into things a little bit. You've had conversations with uh, the ownership team and you now know a little bit better what they're really looking for. Uh, and, you know, maybe every time you have a conversation with them, they show you photos of really expensive precedents that they want you to use as as examples uh, or something. You're like, wow, that 250 doesn't seem like it's going to be high enough. We better up that number. Or or maybe every conversation you have with them, they're talking about how they really got to keep the cost down. And so you're like, well, OK, maybe we can fight for, you know, 225 or something like that. Um, so you're you're getting more information. So it's not just that big generic like, hey, this is what's happening in in this region. Uh, you're actually sort of taking that generic number and then tweaking it a little bit. So you're getting more knowledgeable about the project. You're getting more knowledgeable about the team, uh, and you're able to be a little more specific. Uh, so that's what I refer to as square foot plus. Like I said, that you will not. That's not an official designation. There is no square foot plus designation. Um, this is just me sort of describing the kind of from one end to the other. Uh, and then, like, after a while, you've been designing for a bit. Well, now you're going to get into assemblies. So this is an assembly type uh, analysis. So maybe during design development, you, you now know that you're going to go with a, a brick veneer with a CMU backup. Uh, and there'll be some insulation in there, some rigid insulation. And then there's going to be uh, some metal studs with drywall and, you know, you can kind of pretty much figure out how many linear feet of that there's going to be. And you can look up uh, in the old days, we would uh, all the old folks are like me around. We'll talk about uh, going to the means book, um, which was this sort of collection of data. Uh, and now, of course, you can get it all online through all these different sites, including the means site. Um, uh, but what you're doing is you're saying, all right, here's the build, here's the wall assembly type that we're going to be talking about. Here's the floor assembly type that we're talking about, that whole big package. And so you're not getting into, well, how many bricks or, uh, you know, any sort of really specific level of information. You're just saying that this is, uh, uh you know, 300 linear feet of, uh, this veneer brick wall and they're giving us a price of X. So therefore X times 300 is uh, how much that wall is going to cost. 
and then we do a square footages on the floors and on the roof and then we do a uh, similar assembly for the HVAC systems and per square foot costs for uh, the electrical systems you know so we're able to sort of assemble this pretty accurate but still not super accurate uh, uh, actual cost estimate but there's really no point in doing that until you have a pretty good idea of what all those assemblies are. Uh, if you're still at the beginning of the programming phase, you don't really know yet whether you're going to be using brick veneer or whether it's uh, going to be a uh, maybe you might know constructions, the structural systems like concrete versus steel, but maybe not even yet, right? So uh, an assembly type cost estimate is that's down the road. You just don't have enough information. So that's why C is out. And then uh, just to finish this off, uh, eventually you get to a line item. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a contractor will actually do uh, when they're pulling all the line items, all the trades and figuring out all of the information that's going to go into this. And that is the accurate one that uh, hopefully uh, gets you really close uh, at the end. Now, presumably, your comparable at the beginning should be pretty close to that final line item. Like the whole point is you're trying to guess accurately all the way through, but it gets more and more detailed and, and uh, a finer uh, understanding of the information. So, okay, back to all the other things. So C is out. Let's look at the, the rest of these. List of goals for the project, absolutely. That is a big part of a program. And you think about it, it makes sense, right? If, imagine a client comes to you, uh, you know, imagine you're an architect, which hopefully is easy to do. Uh, and a client comes to you and says, hey, we're doing a, a office for 5,000 square feet, you know, go. Well, you know, you're a designer, you can come up with cool design for 5,000 square foot office, that's great. And it might be, might work great for that particular client. But like, it's a little weird, right? Like you don't have any real idea of what it is they want, right? So the goals, imagine if instead of that, the, the, that client came up to you and said, hey, we're doing a 5,000 square foot uh, office, and uh, we really want to be on the cutting edge of sustainability issues. Okay, well, great. Like that's going to change your design. You will do a different design because those goals were in the program. Uh, or maybe they might have in their uh, goal as one of their goals. Uh, we believe that uh, kind of creating a, a homey atmosphere uh, keeps um, our employees happier and so we have better retention and so it's really important to us that we have a sense of kind of community and togetherness in this and not feel a really hard-edged hierarchy well that's a goal and you can take that goal and that will change your design right so the goals become really important guideposts to where you're going with the design so that's absolutely an important part of the uh, uh, program, it's a huge aspect to it. And then B is also a correct uh, answer. This is, in terms of the kind of numbers crunching, this is a big, big, big part of the program, which is you're analyzing all the room square footages and use overlaps. So I'll give you a couple quick examples. Let's say you're doing this uh, small office space, uh, it's probably bigger than 5,000 square feet that I was saying, but, but you know, they say a 10,000 square foot office, and there's four departments in this office. There's the admin, the marketing, and the engineers, and somebody else. And you get the list of all the rooms that everybody wants, and in each of their lists, 
there's a conference room or say two conference rooms for each of those departments. So, you know, does that mean you have to build, you have to design in eight conference rooms? Seems a little much for a small office. Uh, so part of the analysis of putting together the program is starting to find, well, what if we do uh, four conference rooms and then everybody shares so it'll like it's unlikely you'd have more than uh, than the actual need for that or maybe we do one in each for each department and then one extra one if anybody has two going on at once uh, so you know you'd find ways to find overlaps uh, that allow you to sort of uh, reduce the cost and keep the building uh, more in line. So you're you're taking the information that has come from the direct discussions with the actual users, and you're turning that into the actual useful information for the designers so they can move forward. So if you if the designers see the list that says uh, four departments, two conference rooms each, they're going to design in eight conference rooms. But if the program has gone through that information and found those overlaps and found a reasonable solution, uh, then you're giving that information to the designers. The designers can then move on what's the actual useful uh, thing for this particular ownership. So uh, similar with square footages, uh, you start thinking about, well, you know, department, the marketing department has, uh, you know, seven employees but they foresee a, a nearby future where they might have 10. So you have to design for the 10, uh, not for the seven. So uh, th that's the kind of thing that would be analyzed through this process of putting together the program so that when the designers are going, they're designing for the 10 people, not for the seven that currently exist. So uh, that's a big part of what's uh, going on with the program. There's a bunch of other things as well, but that's a big part of it. Uh, and then uh, we have two left here, and I'm just going to tell you that E, the initial budget, uh, notice it's not the initial cost estimate, it's the initial budget. This is the money that the client has to spend is a different question than the money that the building will cost, right? That's two different ways of approaching the same information, but one of them is saying we understand how much the building will cost. The other is saying here's our limit. Uh, or a, you know, a limit range, something like that. So the program is almost meaningless without some sort of budget idea so that it's clear where the, the end part is. And part of the analysis, this square footage analysis and all of that should be, is this enough of a budget? And that's where you start going back to these comparables and to square footages numbers. Uh, is this enough uh, of a budget to cover the square footages that we're talking about from our analysis? And that leaves us only with uh, preliminary designs. And this is one that I specifically want to sort of point out. Um, they, NCARB is, has been sort of famous over the years of asking questions like this um, because they want to make sure that architects understand that the point of the program does not include doing preliminary design. Now, all of us, we're all designers. Like if somebody says, hey, can you help me start putting together the program? You start putting, you're doing your analysis of the room square footage. You kind of can't help yourself. You're off on the side, you're sketching and you're thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened and that happened and we had this big entryway and, and we make this thing. Well, the problem with doing design while you're doing the programming 
is that your brain, this is just human nature, your brain will start analyzing to confirm your design. So instead of looking at the room analysis and the uh, overlaps issues and the goals uh, in sort of abstract uh, sort of ways that are going to allow you to see clearly what is going to be the best approach, you're already tainting it with your own design sketches, even if it's in your head. Uh, and so you're not letting the real issues bleed through and become the, the actual issue of the, uh, the actual program. So you're never supposed to design while you're doing a program. Uh, and so the, a version of that question gets asked all the time. It could be very complicated, it could be very simple, um, but it's just a really important concept when you talk about programming. Programming is not designing, it's programming. Now, interestingly, once you start thinking of the goals and the room square footage analysis and all of that, it's really close to design because those are leading you to designs, but they're not designs. All right, hopefully that made sense. Let's move on to the next. Question four, okay, for a new high school gymnasium in Denver, Colorado, the architectural and development team has reviewed and analyzed the geotechnical report during their initial preliminary design process. So we're talking very early on preliminary process, the ownership team, the development team has gained the geotechnical information. They've gone to uh, geotechnical, so soils uh, engineers essentially, they've presumably done some uh, uh, testing out on the site and they have a written report that has been given to the development team. The report shows that the first 12 inches of the soil is organic material. So whenever you see organic, uh, when you're talking about soils, what that tells you is you cannot build on top of it because the organic will change size and shape as it decays over time. Uh, so uh, whenever you see the word organic in relationship to soils, know that that's not something you're going to use. So you can cross that one off. Uh, and then from uh, one foot to six foot, the soil is a silty mix with a potential capacity of approximately 1200 PSF, pounds per square foot. And then from six foot to eight foot, the soil is a salty sandy mix. Uh, these terms sound sort of funny, the salty sandy mix. They, they actually often get even longer. Uh, they, you know, silty, salty, sandy, you know, like it's a, it's a whole kind of crazy uh, long list, but it's just sort of talking about the mix of sand, silt, uh, gravel, uh, uh, clays, um, uh, boulders. So just uh, depending on the mix, you'll see a different set of, uh, of descriptors. Uh, so, okay, the soil is a silty sandy mix with a potential capacity of approximately 1500 PSF. So that's from six to eight feet down. Uh, from eight feet to 55 feet, the soil is a gravelly sand mix with a uh, capacity of approximately 5,000 pounds per square foot. Uh, and below 55 feet is a rock base with a potential capacity up to 8,000 PSF. Uh, everything else is sort of straightforward in terms of blows per square foot and liquid limits. Um, uh, the water table is shown at 13 feet below grade. So everybody knows that the water table is that point down below grade where the soil is saturated. Uh, you've all seen this when you've been at the beach and you dig a dig a hole in the at, uh, in the beach uh, and it suddenly fills with water to a certain height. That's you found the water table. Um, if you go out to a job site, they start digging down and it fills with water when it hasn't rained 
that means you've found the water table. Now it's also possible you could dig a hole and it rains and it fills with water and that's a different question. But if you're getting that water that's coming up from the, from the ground itself and it's a, a filling up the, to a certain height in the excavation, uh, you've found the water table. So the water table being at 13 feet below grade, that's a useful thing because every time I dig below that, that uh, excavation is gonna fill with water. Okay, so we got uh, caissons to 56 feet to, to get the best rock soil capacity. Uh, B, we have at 10 feet below grade uh, for solid capacity, but less expensive than caissons. Uh, C, at the frost depth uh, for Denver, which is 36 inches below grade. So frost depth is, sounds interesting. That's a, certainly a reasonable answer much of the time. Uh, a lot of the time, the answer is going to be uh, where the foundation, where the bottom of the footing needs to go. It needs to go below frost depth. Uh, unfortunately, in this situation, the answer has given us uh, 36 inches uh, below grade is where frost depth is for Denver. Well, if we think about 36 inches uh, below grade, that's three feet below grade. That means we only have a 1,200 PSF. And we're talking about doing a gymnasium, which means that even if it's a small gymnasium, it's gonna have to be at least a little bit long span. Like these spans are gonna be uh, at least 60, 80 feet, something like that, maybe even a hundred, but you know, think of it as about 80. Uh, and uh, so you're gonna get pretty reasonably sized loads coming down uh, from that uh, uh, gymnasium. And 1200 PSF is just not believable uh, at that point. You're just not gonna have enough uh, capacity in the soil to uh, give you enough uh, resistance back. Uh, so frost depth is just not an answer uh, for us. Like I say, it often is the correct answer, uh, but at frost depth, the soil capacity isn't strong enough. So we have to go below that. So we're way past frost depth in order to get to better soil. And then D, the answer here is, there is no reason to review the soil's information until there is a viable approved design option, likely during design development phase. So a couple of quick things to say about this. First of all, this, this answer is in here in order for me to take a moment to talk about this issue. Uh, you would never actually get an answer like that on the actual exam. Uh, it's too convoluted and, and sort of weird. Uh, so the, the exam will be more straightforward than this. But I did want you to think about uh, the idea of like, is this something that I would be thinking about during the programming and analysis phase of a project? Uh, and the answer is yes, you would be thinking about this. And it seems weird uh, because, uh, you know, soil capacity feels like a detail, right? That feels like something you should be calculating during, you know, CD phases, maybe design development, but, you know, kind of in, you know, when you're way into it. But it turns out, if you actually start thinking about analysis of design, um, when you're doing your initial site analysis, if you have uh, a area with really bad soil that's just not gonna be uh, very easy to build on and it's gonna cost a lot of money to build on, but I have another part of the site that has very good soil, well, that would be really important to know before you start designing, before you start placing buildings on the site, because you want to know all the reasonable information. Uh, and so uh, the reasonable information about like how to analyze the site for the, like what's the best way to approach this site. 
And if I can't build on part of it without spending a huge amount of extra money, or maybe I can't even build it all on it, well then we shouldn't be proposing designs that have buildings on that part of the site. Uh, so you wanna know that super early in the process. So even though it seems like a detail set of information that sh wouldn't show up until much later, it actually is really important to have early on in the process. It is part of the early programming and analysis of the site. And it's so early, I mentioned it already on one of the other questions, that that package of information that when you're signing the, the contract with uh, an owner, with a client, and they're giving you the, the contract, you're signing the B101 and you're, everybody's getting ready to go, they're handing you the program, they're handing you the survey of the site, they're handing you uh, the, the uh, phase one that we were just talking about, uh, and they're also handing you the geotechnical report of the site. So it's the part of that initial package uh, that the ownership is supposed to be giving to the architect so that the architect can then understand the site and then start using that to develop design concepts. Um, so I always think of it as the owner gives the architect the site. So the survey, the soil, uh, any kind of uh, toxic stuff that's on there through the phase one, uh, and they give the program. So they give the site and the, the starting point uh, for the project, and then the architect can design from that. So D, uh, after all of that discussion, not, an, not the correct answer. So it comes to the other uh, two. The difference between the 5,000 PSF of the one set of soil and the 8,000 is just not enough of a difference to warrant the full caissons, which are gonna be much more expensive. Um, uh, the nice thing about the 10 foot is it's uh, above the 13 foot water table. Um, so I'm gonna claim B as the answer. Uh, for a situation like this. All right, how are we doing? Okay. So here we are in question five. The architect is asked to suggest a project delivery method for the new junior high school project in a suburban community. The project is to be paid for through a tax bond and will be the first big infrastructure project in the community since the library in 1995, which went well over budget. What project delivery method should the architect suggest? So clearly this is at the very, very beginning. It might not, you might not even be the official architect of the project yet. They might be just uh, interviewing, interviewing you to see if, the, if there's a good fit. Uh, and they may be asking you, uh, here's our situation. Uh, we've had this problem in the past. Uh, what do you think uh, we should do? We talk about project delivery. That's the like, how does this whole process get done? Uh, so we have uh, four different examples. There are probably another six. So we, you know, it's probably ten that would uh, come to mind quickly. Um, the famous one, the one that's sort of the most typical, is A: design, bid, build. Um, and design, bid, build means there's an owner. The owner contracts with the architect. So there's the owner. Uh, they contract with the architect. The architect uh, does all their schematic design, design development. Uh, contract documents and then bidding. Um, so they go through a whole process. That whole process is having meetings with the ownership uh, at regular intervals. So the owner and the architect are presumably very much on the same page. Uh, design ideas have been thrown out and other ones have been established because there's a coming together of the minds. Uh, so it's a full long process. 
and then we get to the bidding point and then eventually at that point that's when uh, a bidder is chosen so we have multiple contractors bidding and if one of them eventually gets chosen and so there from that point on uh, we have the GC is sort of taking over the project uh, and then eventually it gets to a point where the project is finished uh, the GC has built it out so it's designed it's then bid out and then it's built so the great thing about design bid build is that there's lots of opportunity for communication with between the architect and the ownership so there's all this opportunity to make sure you're getting the design right uh, that's fabulous but then you also bid it and so by bidding it out to multiple potential builders you're able to absolutely be sure that you got the low bid that you really understand what the price actually should be for this project you can imagine let's say you just went through this process but you only just gave it to one general contractor instead of bidding it out you could very well give it to a contractor who doesn't isn't going to tell you uh, that their price is 20% higher than somebody else's price you you don't know that because you can't see it in comparison so when you see multiple bids you have a very good idea about what the price really should be it's a great way to make sure you're getting the low bid um, now it doesn't mean you have to choose the low bid there are some specific situations where you're contractually obligated to in certain municipalities but most of the time the ownership is not required to choose the low bid uh, it's just useful to know but obviously people care about money a lot on these things and so the low bid often does get chosen if the low bid turns out to be have bad references or something like that you might say okay it's interesting to know what that price could be but sounds like they're no fun to work with so let's not let's not work with them we'll go with the next bid um, so you're not always using low bid but through this process you at least know what the low bid is the downside to design bid build is that is taken forever that's just a long process uh, design build is when the architect and the builder are actually one entity now they can be two separate companies that just do a contract with each other but in terms of the eyes of the owner they're one entity so there's one contract from the owner to the design builder and so you know that same point the design builder can probably finish that project a little faster not necessarily but probably kind of on averages will be a little bit faster so that that's a big positive uh the other issue is you know the price very early because you're choosing both early but you've lost some of the communication possibilities and it's also hard to know whether for the eventual design whether you're actually getting the low bid for what finally got designed because you've had to choose the design builder very early in the process and so you just haven't had the information uh, to know to, to be able to get a reasonable uh, idea about whether that's going to be the cheapest so there's certain advantages to design build uh, but uh, and speed being potentially one of them um, but knowing the low bid and the communication level are not them those are much better under design bid build uh, and so uh, in this context I'm gonna say design bid build makes the most sense uh, so design build reasonable choice but I think design bid build 
wins in, in the end. Now let's do a quick discussion of C and D, uh, which fast track is the craziest project delivery process. That's when you do a sort of basic design for what you think the foundation is going to look like, and you pull a package together and you hand it off, and they start putting in doing excavations and putting in the foundations. And while they're building that, you're designing the structural system, the steel grid or whatever it is uh, that you're putting up, and then you hand that package off. And as soon as that's going, that they're building that, and while they're building that, you're designing the uh, skin of the building, and then you put it back. So it's all these separate packages that, so that the design and the building can overlap. And there is no way to do fast track without messing up. There's just no way you can know where all the plumbing is going to go in the final design or uh, how all the little final design decisions are going to happen. And so it's just a crazy, ridiculous way to design. However, there are a bunch of times when, yeah, it's a crazy, ridiculous way, but by speeding it up, uh, it could actually make a big difference. So maybe you're designing a stadium for uh, a professional football team. Well, they need to start playing in September. Uh, and so it doesn't matter if it costs a little bit more to fix something down the road. You're going to do it anyway because it's going to cost a huge amount if they can't play in their stadium when it starts. Or maybe you're uh, designing a building in uh, downtown Tokyo and it's very, very expensive. And the holding cost of that land with nothing happening on it for two years uh, is just an enormous amount of bank cost. And so maybe if I'm spending a bunch of, you know, $2 million extra in bank costs, if I have $500,000 in change orders because doing the fast track caused all these problems, well, I still saved a million five. So totally worth uh, doing the fast track. So it's a crazy system that makes sense in some very specific uh, situations, uh, but uh, not in, in this particular example. And then multiple prime, is another one where you would have in a very specific situations, uh, sometimes you'll see like university might uh, do a uh, lab building where they have one architectural or one contracting team uh, who's taking care of uh, the skin and structure of the building, uh, whereas the actual lab interiors will be done by a specialist. And so there's two different uh, general contractors uh, they have that have each have their own set of subcontractors, and so they're considered two prime contractors. So multiple primes are when in those specific situations uh, when you need to kind of figure out a, a, a more complicated thing than just a straight architect to bid to choosing a bidder to one GC. So those are all interesting ones. Is a, a construction manager processes. Uh, integrated project delivery uh, is a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, you should have a really good idea about how project delivery works and what the advantages and disadvantages are of each, but they're not super big, complicated ideas of advantages and disadvantages. These should be fairly simple, straightforward ideas. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's take us to the end there, Mike, yeah. We were there. Beautiful. Well, thank you. That was a good uh, a good review there of the um, different uh, delivery project delivery types. Uh, so thank you, Mike. Thanks for uh, going through those uh, those topics with us. Thanks everybody for tuning in.
uh, we've had a good uh, conversation over on our ARE community. So if you haven't checked it out, uh, head over there. Um, but uh, because we have uh, a couple of architects who are answering questions alongside of our, our webinar in real time, which was awesome. But thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, as I mentioned at our next ARE live broadcast on August 12th of 2021, uh, we'll review a construction and evaluation exercise with virtual workshop instructor, Jory. Uh, this is going to be a good opportunity to see how hands-on and in-depth the virtual workshops are, so definitely don't miss it. Uh, just posted the link uh, to register in the chat box, uh, or you can go to blackspectacles.com slash ARE-LIVE to sign up there. As I mentioned at the top, uh, we're, uh, we've launched at Black Spectacles our ARE guarantee. We're confident that if you use our expert membership to the fullest, you'll pass the ARE, and if you don't, we'll pay for your retake. So to learn about, more about how to qualify for the guarantee or to check out any of our individual memberships, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com and uh, get all the information there. Also, to learn more about how to get your firm, uh, your whole firm on a membership, um, you can go to blackspectacles.com and head to the pricing section and look for firms. I mentioned that we would have a, give a giveaway today. So the lucky winner of a Black Spectacles t-shirt is Edgar uh, C. So Edgar, we're gonna reach out uh, via email to get your size and shipping information. And just a reminder to all of you, if you'd like to be eligible to win a t-shirt next time, post a question you have about our feature topic in the community during our next ARE Live, um, and you'll be eligible for that. And as I always like to say, our community is always buzzing, um, not just during ARE Live. Uh, we built it so that you have a place to go to ask questions while you're studying all kinds of questions, whether it's a strategy question or a specific tactical question. We have licensed architects who work um, uh, to answer questions in the community, uh, along with everyone who's in the community. Uh, so you can uh, check that out at any time. We're offering a 10% discount uh, off all our memberships this month. So you can choose exactly how you want to study for the rest of the summer and use code A-R-E-L-I-V-E-J-U-L-Y-1-0 to get 10% off any of our memberships and get licensed this year. And keep in mind that the coupon code expires on August 12th when our next ARE Live airs. So if you're ready to start studying, head over to blackspectacles.com and use that code. Uh, finally, be sure to stick around for a few minutes to take our survey um, and share any suggestions that you might have. Uh, we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching. Thank you.